Welcome to Downstage Center, a production of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. We're joined today by John McDaniel. Now, television audiences know John McDaniel as the music director on the Rosie O'Donnell Show, two Emmy uh, Awards for that, five nominations. Theatergoers, of course, know John over the years for many shows, including Taboo, the show that Rosie O'Donnell produced, the revival of Annie Get Your Gun, Patti LuPone on Broadway, Grease, the recent revival, company revival of that, also a new show currently on Broadway called Brooklyn. I'm going to ask you in a minute, John, to explain what Brooklyn's all about. But Howard is just bursting with a thought that he's been harboring all day. Well, oh, not, not bursting. <laughs> it's just in the land of hyphenates, one does not often see the credit musical director, musical supervisor, slash producer. Very on true. Brooklyn, we're seeing it with you. How did that come to pass? Well, I'll tell you, uh, Brooklyn came to, uh, into my life two and a half years ago. My my good friend Jeff Calhoun, the director, with whom I've worked on Broadway many times, um, said to me – this was right, right at the end of the Rosie O'Donnell show. It was about six months before we ended the show. He said, I don't know what you're doing when Rosie's over, but you've got to hear this music. I'm working on this new show called Brooklyn. You've just got to hear the music. So he and uh, one of the writers, Mark Schoenfeld, came over to my loft one day, and, and I, we had scheduled an hour meeting – and six hours later, they were still there. I was just completely drawn into this this score, the story, what the message is. I just got it with the show. I loved it immediately. And within a day, I said to Jeff, let's produce the show ourselves because it's not every day that something like this comes into your life. It's very, very unique. It's a unique voice. It's new writers. It's everything I believe in. And I'd produced you know, television. I was a producer on The Rosie O'Donnell Show, and I'd produced records. And so it felt like a sort of a natural thing to produce something for the theater, which is my real love. I mean, the theater is really in my blood. It's what I love to do and where I love to spend my time. And it just felt right. And uh, so we began our journey uh, bringing Brooklyn to Broadway ultimately. So tell us about Brooklyn and specifically what attracted you. And, of course, there's a great story about the creation of Brooklyn from, from Mark Schoenfeld, um, one and of the writers, right, and how he Barry. came to, to put it together. Yeah. Um, which shall I address first? Let's oh, see. Pick, pick well, I, I, I there. Maybe since this show is so new and probably most of our listeners have not been to New York to have a chance to see right. it, the storyline of Brooklyn and the title character of Brooklyn as a person as well as a borough of New York City. That's right. <laughs> it's, uh, Brooklyn is the title character. She uh, is a young girl who was born in Europe. and uh, Actually, the, the, the show is told within the framework of – a group of, of uh, street corner storytellers telling a fairy tale every night under the Brooklyn Bridge. And the fairy tale they tell includes a girl named Brooklyn who was born in France and becomes very, um, very famous over there for writing a song called Once Upon a Time. She never knew her father, although she knows that he was from Brooklyn, and she sets off to find him. And that's essentially what it is. All along the way, she meets this diva named Paradise, and uh, Paradise is the reigning diva in America at the time. And Paradise challenges her to a sing-off at Madison Square Garden to see who's the biggest diva of all. And uh, those are the two main plot lines of, of Brooklyn. Now, you mentioned the sing-off. I wanted to ask, this is a show, no show just crops up suddenly on Broadway. It can take years. Right. Um, a number of people have commented about parallels to American Idol, both yes. in performance style and in this plot of, of two performers a, going ahead to head. Yeah. Is it correct that... that this was created – this was written in the show before American Idol had ever turned up, at least on American shores. Absolutely. That element of the show was written 10 to 15 years ago. 
Um, it just so happens that – in fact, back when we did the workshop, there were those who said, oh, nobody would ever believe that. Who would ever believe a sing-off like that? And of course then six months later, American Idol debuted on American television and changed uh, the face of reality TV. But um, – it is an interesting aspect, and I think people really do respond to that. That we do have two incredible ladies in our show, Eden Espinosa and Ramona Keller, who both sing just, just to die for. They're just their voices are incredible. They're they're, uh, and they have got wonderful soul, and they've been uh, a real treat to work with. Well. Um Eden Espinosa has been compared very favorably with Adina Menzel because, of course, in Wicked, she was the understudy when Adina left on vacation. Right, the standby, she actually, yeah. Standby but, and yeah. got rave reviews she did. for her yeah, she, performance. Eden did go on for two weeks last summer and was just magnificent in that role, as she'll be in every role she ever plays. Now, the creation of, uh, of Brooklyn by the, the, the book and music writers, lyricists, uh, right. Mark Schoenfeld and Barry McPherson, it's a very interesting story. In fact... A quite different treatment by the New York Times several months ago with a cartoon, yes. a half-page uh, sequence of cartoon panels describing this, the real-life story of Mark Schoenfeld and Barry McPherson. Can you tell us a yes, little bit about that? of course. Well, Mark and Barry met years ago when Mark was a jingle writer and Barry was a chick singer who came in and sang and he just loved her voice. And they, they didn't work together very much, but uh, years later, and this would be now about 15 years ago, I think, um, Barry was... Uh, on her way to a gig in Brooklyn walking along the street and she heard she, there was the, a guy on the corner with a boombox telling stories and singing songs. Which, which is not uncommon in New York. Not at all. No, <laughs> it's, it's not at all uncommon. But um, she walked past and she saw there's Mark and he was doing his thing and they were reacquainted. Um, turned out he had fallen on hard times and was living in Penn Station and was you know on the streets and um, Barry took him in and said to her family, we're going to have a guest on the couch for a couple of months. And uh, that's where the, the seeds of Brooklyn the Musical was born. They Which began was actually to, in Massachusetts, as I yes, recall. Yes, yeah. exactly. They began to write the show then. And uh, we're glad they did. <laughs> so when you come into it now, Mark had been – Mark and Barry had been working on this show. And my right. understanding is that Mark actually could perform the entire show himself He'll with, do it him, for you with anytime, his boombox. Anytime you want. Um, <laughs> When you come in as as a musical director and a musical arranger, how do you how do you begin to work with a composing team? How do you develop their ideas and broaden them? Well, they're a very interesting team in that no one ever sees them do what they do. I think that the same might be true for Comet and Green. They used to go off in a room and they would work and no one would ever really witness it, but they'd come out with incredible lyrics. Well, Mark and Barry are very similar, although they go into a recording studio with a bunch of friends who are musicians, and they somehow get these demos together, and they they presented uh, me uh, and had presented Jeff with uh, some rather polished demos of some of these songs. Um, they're more a studio version, and so my task really was to theatricalize them and, and take them from being what might just be a pop song and turn it into a more theatricalized uh, setting of the song. Um, and also to weave the the themes throughout the show and to you know kind of work with them to to really theatricalize it is really the best way I could describe it. And did you and and uh, Jeff have the opportunity? I mean, how much shaping of the overall show because these were not people who'd ever written for theater before. They right. may have attended theater, but that was barely that. Actually, they don't they're not even fans of. <laughs> so they're in theater. so they're in a whole different frame of reference. Yeah, how. 
what was that process? How did well, how did you take Jeff that? spent months and months and months working with them to shape what used to be a, a, a huge. I think it was three hundred pages long, and Jeff brought it down to about a manageable seventy three pages. And uh, through that, of course, a lot of things were cut, things were reshuffled. Uh, by the time I came in um, to begin work on the music, uh, and the, when we began to produce the show together, uh, the show was relatively, you know, beginning to find itself. I think the musical, a lot of the musical uh, transitional uh, interstitial material hadn't been found. Uh, a lot of things had, had to be reorganized and reconceived. But we, we, had, we decided to do a workshop in September of '02, and we had about eight months to pull that together. And so during that time, we worked a lot on, uh, on shaping the music and, and the and the story and the book and uh, every time we do the show we learn so much we did the workshop and we realized oh my gosh there's so much confusing stuff in here we've got to fix this change this blah, blah, blah. a year later we did a production in Denver Colorado and we learned a lot there too oh my gosh we've got to change this fix this and now ultimately a uh, third time hopefully is a charm on Broadway we really uh, really got it got it right now the, the current cast of five at what point did they get involved was this it's Just an, prior to Broadway, it's or an, they've been involved No, before? some have been involved since the workshop. We uh-huh. found Eden Espinosa in Los Angeles for the workshop. She was 24 years old, uh, living out in L.A., doing eight shows a day of the Spider-Man Rocks show at Universal Studios. No equity card. Um, and she just completely blew us away and got the role immediately. Um, so what What year was that? That was 02. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, – and Karen Olivo also was in the workshop and uh, is our faith and – Beautiful, beautiful actor, singer, dancer. She's incredible. The unsung hero of Brooklyn, I would say. Um, and Kevin Anderson, who is in the Broadway production, was in the workshop two years ago but was una- unavailable for Denver. So he uh, was doing a TV show on Fox. And we couldn't compete with the money, so he <laughs> did the TV show. But then the TV show was canceled. Now he was available to come to be with us on Broadway, which has been a real blessing. And we, the guy who played the street singer in the workshop in Denver is this guy named David Jennings, who is a wonderful singer and actor who regrettably, uh, three months before we were to go into rehearsal, was stricken with uh, thyroid cancer, and they mm-hmm. had to go in and do surgery, and, and so he wasn't able to be with us on Broadway. He will definitely sing again, and he's just he's now recuperating. But uh, So Clavant Derricks came forth, and uh, we're so blessed to have him. He's an amazing he's force. Yeah, incredible. And then Ramona Keller, who plays Paradise, was not with us for the workshop, but she joined us for Denver. Um, and has been with us ever since. So all of them it's, have really been involved. Yeah. Now, when when uh, Eden Espinosa got the standby role for Wicked, did that put any crimp in your plans? It was a blessing for but, her, really, because we had, after Denver, we had to reorganize our producing team. We had a lot of work to do uh, on the book, and we realized we weren't ready to come into Broadway straight away. We needed to really make a, a solid plan, and we figured that fall '04 was the earliest we could really get it together to do that. So. Here we had a year, and these actors, you know, they're they're gypsies. They got to yeah, they got to work. They got to eat. So um, Eden got that role, uh, being the standby for Adina, which was a real great thing because she uh, had a steady paycheck for a year while she waited for Brooklyn to happen. Typically, as a producer, you have a producer who then talks to the artists creating the show and says, you know, have you thought about this? You know, we need the show. Mm-hmm. To be a little of that. There's not. The division here, the, the the artists are in charge. You and Jeff took took really took the lead on this. We did. We uh, 
we believed in it first. I th although we found a wonderful partner in Ben Mordecai, who uh, is one of Producers Four, which is a producing organization that has uh, helped us shepherd the show to Broadway. And Ben's a great collaborator and and uh, a wonderful sounding board creatively as well as uh, you know on the business side, which is what we really needed him for. But were you you were actually going out and raising money for the show? We you did. were actively yes. Saying... Jeff and I raised our half. Yeah, it was really a. Uh, it's hard. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's that's really a, hard. I'm, that's what I'm asking about the different <laughs> perspective. You know that you can you've worked on countless shows as so many people are, and everybody sits and says, you know, what do those producers do? And, right. It's and so a, it's it's a it's a whole different dynamic. Incredible here. learning experience. In fact, it was interesting because between the Denver production of Brooklyn and the Broadway production of Brooklyn, I did a show called Taboo, which was produced by my friend Rosie O'Donnell, uh, and it was so interesting to have. I was already entrenched in the producing process, although my show hadn't yet made it to Broadway. Uh, and then I watched her, you know, go through so many of the similar things that I'd been learning. It was really uh, kind of fascinating that we were both going through this at the same time. It was really interesting. Well, we're going to talk more about Taboo Great. a little a little bit later. Let's, let's keep on Brooklyn uh, yeah, for a yeah, few yeah. more minutes. Sure, sure. On, on, on this show, as both producer, musical supervisor, musical arranger, musical orchestrator, Oy. you're wearing all these different hats. <laughs> yes, Do you get into, into conflict with yourself over your different roles as a producer it's, it's interesting. versus musical? In a, in a certain sense, yeah, but um, – uh, I argue with myself, and I, I usually, uh, I usually. Did you win. negotiate your own fees? That's the question. <laughs> I, you know, uh, between Ben and my lawyer, we worked it out, so it was very, very fair. I, I was uh, very cognizant of the fact that I was wearing two, uh, two or four hats, depending on how you look at it. I mean, even if I was just the orchestrator of the show, that would be enough job for one person. Uh, but then to also do the music supervision, <clears throat> the vocal arrangements, and incidental music arrangements, and then produce the show was, uh, it was a feat, and it was. It was thrilling. It's, it's been a great ride. So when you get into that argument with yourself, who wins, the producer or the music guy? Uh, they both win. It's interesting. <laughs> they both see the, the ramifications and they both understand what the end product is going to be. And the producer wants the music to be as good as the music guy does. Uh, it doesn't mean I would spend money that I didn't need to spend. It's sort of – it kind of made perfect sense in a way. Coming back to the issue of, of the music itself, you, you commented earlier that, that Mark and Barry, who wrote the show, were really writing in a pop music idiom. Yeah. And, um, and again, we'll, we'll touch on it as we talk about Taboo, but which, of course, was Boy George, who yeah. was not known again, for theater music exactly. writing. Do you think this issue of that there is music that is pop music or there is music that is Broadway music, what, what are the opportunities? Where is, is there a division between the two? Or is it about merging them? Certainly, we have Rent, which brought in more rock. Mm -hmm. You know, you can go back to Hair, sure. to Gentlemen of Verona. Godspell. It, yet it seems that there's this endless discussion about what's pop music and what's theater music now. What have you tried to do with Brooklyn in terms of, as you say, taking it more into theater sound but without losing the pop impetus, which is where the authors came from? Yeah, I think it's a blurry line and I think it, I think it all works together. I don't think you can point and say, OK, that's theater singing and that's pop singing. I think that it's becoming – you know, interestingly, back in the 50s, all the pop music came from Broadway. So we haven't really um, – and of course, then that veered off, and pop music became something altogetherly different. But I think people know what they respond to, and they know music that they tap their toes to, and that they they get a groove on. And we know in Brooklyn when the audience stands up in the middle of the show, sometimes twice or even three times, but that's rare. Um, 
for these performances, they're moved by this music that Mark and Barry wrote um, it, it, in a visceral way. They they get it. They just have to get on their feet and, and scream and clap. Even some of it doesn't have a standard, you know, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, verse, you know, right. structure. Right, right. It has, I think the structure comes from R&B and gospel and and it's a it's a freer form. It's like you know it when you see it. You you feel it. I don't know. Somebody asked me. They said, "John, you're so you're such a white guy. How did you do all this sort of R and B gospel stuff?" I said, "I don't. You know, I don't know. It's just sort of forty three years of living and sort of being uh, exposed to all different kinds of music. It just kind of uh, it's all not that different. It's it's a it's a feeling. I don't know. It's a hard thing to describe. Well, it's interesting what you said a moment ago about uh, the pop music of the fifties and the Broadway music, and that's really been the case for. A whole century or more since mm-hmm. the very beginnings of Broadway, the music on Broadway has reflected what's going on in pop culture and vice versa, and the two have been intertwined. And now people, you know, criticize while well, Broadway is becoming you know this different style of music. Yeah. Well, they're comparing it to the fifties, you know, the sixties style of music. They learned in low music, which was fine for that period, <laughs> sure. but now here we are in a new it's a century. Sensibility, yeah. yeah, and the sensibilities have changed. Um, I think that this kind of music. This is a personal opinion. Um, appeals to a lot of the younger people who maybe have not experienced Broadway because they consider Broadway their parents' generation. Mm-hmm. And I looked at people in the audience tonight that I saw the show. There are a lot of very – when I say young people, I'm talking you know, teens, 20s, mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. not children, but right. people in their 20s sure. who are really into it. And I think that the show you know, reflects what's going on in the culture of this country. Yeah, it's interesting because it's not to suggest Mark and Barry are not – in their 20s Correct. or 30s. Correct. That's right. And John and I are roughly contemporaneous mm-hmm. in age. Speak I mean, for yourself. <laughs> I'm speaking to John. John. Daniel John. and I are John. roughly John. contemporaneous John. in yeah. age. Yeah. You know, this is music that's been out there for years. It's what we grew up on. Yeah. And I'm sure we both sat listening to cast albums at the same time that we were listening to simply what was on the radio. Right, absolutely. And whether it was, it was Motown, you know, and all of those other things. But this seems a good way to lead into we want to play. I just uh, want to say before track. we oh, leave yes. this, because you mentioned the young people, but I have to say that so many of our repeat customers now are actually older people who are digging this music. And I, I've, I'm, I ask them, I say, what did you, what, what did you, and, and they'll say to me, well, everybody loves soul music. You know, everybody loves it. It's, it's really uh, remarkable that, that Murphy it's, Brown it's appealing. It. <laughs> yeah, it's appealing to everybody. Which is so really it may fantastic. only be the, the theater purists and gatekeepers who want to define what is Broadway music well, and what is pop music. Yeah, Possibly. I think if you, if you take a look at what Broadway has been in the past, and then you look at this show, you say, well, that's not what My Fair Lady was like. That's, that's right. true. Absolutely yeah. not. But then that's not what Rent is like. Yeah. That's not what a lot of other – that's not what Wicked is like. That's what, not what like, a just, lot of other Broadway shows are like. We just wanted to create an, an entertainment yeah. and yeah. Uh, yeah. speak in the language of, of what's what we feel is very very today. Well, I count something like 18 songs, including one reprise in the, in the playbill. Uh, what would be one good song to – represent the show, do you think? Well, I would have to... Immediately comes to mind our our big anthem, which is called Once Upon a Time, which Eden sings uh, in Brooklyn. This is a song that she wrote, actually, when she was a child. The Brooklyn wrote when she was a child. The character. Uh, the character Brooklyn, yeah. yes. Um, and uh, now she's a grown-up woman, and she's, she's maybe 20 years old, and she's first appearing at Carnegie Hall, and this is uh, her big moment at Carnegie Hall with Once Upon a Time.
Well, that was Eden Espinosa as the character Brooklyn, the song from the show Brooklyn, Once Upon a Time. We're talking today with John McDaniel, who is the producer and the musical guru, I guess. Cause there you, you go. Have, you have like three or four different musical titles, so we'll wrap them all together. Guru is good. Guru. That works for yeah, me. Yeah. Brooklyn has been quite a quite an adventure for you the last couple of years. It certainly has been. How does it feel to see it finally mounted on a Broadway stage? It's beyond thrilling. It's uh, everything I thought it could be, and more, actually. It is, and to, and to see the audience reaction every night, uh, it's it really it really moves people. It's got great heart, and, and the, you know, of course they love the music, which makes me very happy. And something that's really charming about the show, which you know you can't see on the radio, is the set and what goes on on the stage. Oh, yeah. The setting is under the Brooklyn Bridge, and it's all street litter and garbage and mm-hmm. whatever scaffolding and, and sort of a uh, broken away tenement. Yeah, and the costumes and the props all come from the street, literally. Correct. Tobin Ost, the uh, magnificent costume designer. Uh, used found objects. He would go around actually and look through dumpsters and find things uh, lying on the side of the street and say, oh, well, I could make a dress out of that. And he did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it's remarkable visuals. It's just uh, really, really exciting to see. And, and you know, the, he uh, did that, of course, because this is told by a troupe of street performers, and they wouldn't have any budget for costumes, so they would go and just find whatever was lying around and make their uh, costumes and props out of that. Though they would appear to be fairly resourceful based on how clever some of them came no, up they with. they got it going on for sure. Turns out to be. And there's, there's at least one scenic artist who must thank you for one of the devices in the show. One of the characters spray paints a wall, a building wall, keeping like a mark of chapters, you know, one, two, three, four, five, spraying <clears> those <throat> lines on, yeah. which then some scenic artist gets paid every day to probably repaint. I think that's true. Got to paint Got to paint it. That's right. Yeah. Start over again. So somebody's earning a living just repainting the set every day. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so in the midst of Brooklyn, which you've been living with for a couple of years, in the middle of that yeah. came Taboo. Yes. Now, Taboo, which I would like to say I think was was fairly unfairly treated when it, when it came to New York. Um, I saw the show twice and thought there was extraordinary talent and, and, and wonderful stuff in it. Yeah. Um, that was, as you say – a first-time producer, your friend Rosie O'Donnell, yes. taking on this show. And the show was substantially reworked from its London version. How much of a hand did you have in the changing of the show as the musical director? Where was the impetus for that coming Truly, from? Truly, I didn't have that much input in the structure of the show. Um, but once the uh, Rosie wanted to rework the book for Broadway, and she brought in Charles Bush, who's a dear man, really talented guy. And between... Charles, Rosie, and Boy George, they began to formulate – and the director, of course, Chris Renshaw, began to formulate a new book for Broadway, and that dictated what songs might be added, might be cut. Uh, by the time I came into it, we did some readings, and uh, I started doing some arrangements, and it, it was a really happy uh, collaboration. It was really um, – an enjoyable process. I'm getting off the track of your question, though. I can't remember what you... Well, it was just about how the show transitioned, oh, first yes. of all, from London to here, because right. there were plot changes, there were ca- shifts new in character emphasis, yeah. there were new songs, and just, just how that had all come together. So, yeah. But you say you really came I, into it after yes, some of that work of that had, had been, been done. done. And that work continued through the readings and the rehearsals for Broadway, and the previews, certainly, on Broadway. It was it was a kind of a... a it was a what was the, what's a good word for it? It was a dramatic time, uh, the Broadway previews, because we, we we didn't do a proper workshop or an out of town. We were doing all of our work on 45th Street, 
in front of the world. And, and what was behind that choice? Was that just the... I, I think Rosie felt that the show was ready. Mm-hmm. I think she felt, here we go. We've got a theater. Let's do it. She was, she's very confident, you know, and she felt, uh, uh, I think she felt, she must have felt the show was ready because we did it. So, mm-hmm. and, and you're also doing it under the very severe spotlight of the press because of Rosie's personal life and the problems she was having with yes, that. Yes, and that so, timing of her, yeah. her trial was so unfortunate because she was really being beaten up on it. It was just the popular thing to do. And uh, that was going on concurrently with our previous on Broadway. It was just – it couldn't have been – It was sort of a perfect storm. A great, it was a real storm. It, it, it had to be very distractive to you and the other people working on the show itself. I would yeah, think. we're all trying to show up every day and do our best work. And I have to say I'm very proud of the music. I, I loved working with George. He's a really interesting talent and a creative guy. And, he, you know, boy, talk about someone who's been through it. He's really mm-hmm. been through it. He was one of the most popular – artists in the world for a time you know when years ago yeah when his song when do you really want to hurt me and karma chameleon were number one everywhere i mean that's just how can you even i can't even conceive of that and so living through that and the drug stuff that he went through and coming out the other end a very uh a very humble um lovely guy uh talented i think his lyrics are just genius really really great it was a lovely score to work with and again were you in the work that you were doing was there the idea of how do we make this more theatrical um what were what was the what were you working on with george to to take yeah, the music onto the george stage let me run free with um with the stuff he i mean he certainly has opinions about things but he was uh very generous in saying you know yeah go do your thing let's let's see what you got what what uh What's happening? And, and I just I did sort of what I do, which is to formulate the music and to to hopefully meld it into the theatrical fabric of the show, along with the scenery and the costumes and the and the choreography, and you know just to make it sort of a seamless uh, event. Now, had you yourself seen Taboo in the London version? I did not see it. I was dying to see it, but I was very busy with Brooklyn at that time, uh-huh. and I wasn't able to get over there to see it. Um, but I did see it on DVD, so I had a really good reference. Yeah. So did you, was there any of, a, we didn't do it that way in London type of discussion? That or, would go on. They had a four-piece band in London, uh-huh. and uh, we did our show at the Plymouth Theater, which has a nine-man minimum. On Broadway, you have every different house has a minimum of musicians you Based have Based on hire. the size of the theater? Right, yeah. with, the, uh, with the musicians' union. So we knew that we were going to have nine, and... Uh, I thought to myself, well, what will we do? So I decided, of course, we, it has to be a rock band, essentially. But you could but pick I, five of them to stay home, couldn't you? Yeah, who would you want to do that? Yeah. <laughs> well, no, but if you wanted you to know, stay true yeah, to the London version. He wasn't the producer version. on that, but if you're paying him, you, you <laughs> yeah, want to yeah, show yeah. up there. And I really – and I thought, let's have a rock band with strings. And George loved that idea. So uh-huh. we had uh, we had a, um, a string trio and, and a really healthy rock band. And it was, it was a lovely sound. It was really – Really happy with the way that came out. Steve Margosius did the orchestrations, and I was—I just love working with him. He—we worked together on Greece years ago, and he's a great guy. Well, let's let's play a song from Taboo now. Great. The the music. Many people who've heard or seen the American version prefer the American version music to the London version, which I've, I think is quite interesting. I've heard that a lot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, uh, I get quite a few emails from people saying that. Oh, great! Yeah, That's yeah. good to hear. I um. Yeah, I th- London was a little bit more. It was their first shot. It was it was a little bit more crude, and I think the the folks who put it together didn't weren't didn't have a lot of experience in the theater, and uh-huh. I think it 
it kind of sounds like that. And it was in a smaller venue yeah. and not – it wasn't a, it wasn't a big West End house or anything Correct. like that. Yeah. So and, and, and a smaller band, as you say, four pieces mm-hmm. versus nine. Mm-hmm. So. Well, did, you, did you add any extra pieces for the CD? Uh, no, we didn't. We recorded exactly the way that's you heard done, of the course, a couple extra strings here and there. We did overdub a lot of guitars, though. Uh-huh. Kavan Frost, uh, who is George's co-composer and who uh, worked closely with us here in New York and played guitar in the in the pit uh, or on stage, actually, um, uh, produced the record with me. And he is a great guitar player, and we overdubbed a lot of guitar. But uh, other than that, it's pretty much what you heard in the theater. You want to pick something? Sure. Well, I, I'll say my, one of my favorites is a song called Out of Fashion, which happens in, in Act Two. Um, George has now been on a downward spiral with drugs, and he's he's peaked. His career's peaked, and he's, you know, he's, he feels that he's out of fashion, as are many, many other characters in, in the show. It happens at the same time. They're uh, a little bit down on their luck, and it's, it's kind of a, it's a nice – this was a really nice, a fun arrangement to put together because it intertwines a lot of the different themes of the show uh, all together. From Taboo, Out of Fashion, Howard Sherman and yours truly, John Von Susten, today chatting with John McDaniel, among other things, currently the producer and musical guru, as we've defined him, of Brooklyn. <laughs> what else in your career do you look back proudly at and say, wow, that was a, a fun time in, in, my, in my life, things I was doing before these two projects? Gosh, well, two, th- two projects come to mind. Well, I don't know. Certainly, when I, I can hand you your resume, <laughs> no, if you no, want no, to go no, through the no, list. No. I'm familiar with it. Um, the day that Rosie called me and said, "I'm going to have a, a live talk show," and I'd heard about the talk show, I said, "Yeah, congratulations." Had, had you known Rosie at this point? Oh yeah, we did. She was uh, Rizzo in Greece that I did in 1994 ah, on Broadway, and we had actually known each other before that. We both lived in Los Angeles, and we'd wind up at the same parties. Me at the piano, and her singing show tunes into the night. It was you know, so okay. we were we were we were friends. But she said, I'm going to have a live band on my talk show. And I thought, oh, is she going to ask me to do this? And she did. And I said, of course, yes. And I hung up the phone and said, oh, sh- <laughs> I don't know how to do it's that. It's okay. We're satellite radio. Yeah, you okay. can say, oh, shit. <laughs> well, I, I don't know how to do that. I know how to put a Broadway show together, a, a cabaret act, anything like that, but not a talk show band. I just I didn't have the concept. But uh, first day we were at the studio and I plopped myself down on our couch. and I said, now, what do you want me to do? And she said, just do what you do. And so I thought, wow, that's okay. That's cool. Do what you do. So I put together a little five-piece band, and we played all kinds of music, pop, and, and uh, a lot of show music. And it was a blast. It was really great. That she, was, was, she was always a show tune fan. First. Always. So that wasn't – Always. You we, weren't we had that in introducing common. you. So that was that She was knew all the words, because, and I knew how to play them all. So we were a great team. Because <laughs> there's no question that, that – during the time that that show was on, it was certainly the single biggest booster of Absolutely. a Broadway and musical theater I'm that, so proud that we've that. had for years. Yeah, we would have every if you were a Broadway musical and you were running on Broadway, you would get a, a shot on our show, and that was just something to be so proud of. I love that. You're accustomed to working in Broadway, where it can take several years for a show to come to the stage. To the inception process. Yes. Here you are on a daily mm-hmm. talk show where each day is a new show. And you have to. Produce. You have Correct. to have the music ready Tons and all. Tons of music how coming is, at you. How is that? The, 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 the uh, demands of television are so different than the demands of Broadway. Yeah, they're immediate. I mean, yeah. we, would, we would get to the studio at 7.30 in the morning for a 10 o'clock live show, and things would change during that time. Oh, my gosh, uh, Whitney Houston's sick, so that performance is out, and, oh, Mariah Carey's going to come in. Okay, great. You know, there were just – there were a million – 
uh, exciting things that would happen. Um, uh, and uh, <laughs> I'm stronger because of them, <laughs> I think. <laughs> I think. But it was it was most fun. The first ten minutes of the show, when when Rosie would chat, she never ceased to uh, amaze me with her generosity and her her love for kids and for the theater and for the things that she believed in. And it really was that really reached so many people. I, I travel now, you know, across the country, wherever I go, people stop me and say, oh, my gosh, I love that show. And that I will, I'll have that forever. Well, and as a musical director, I mean, somebody rooted in musical theater, not someone who's used to be typically not a position that's recognized walking Correct. down the street. Maybe you the occupy, back of my head. You, you occupy a unique position of yeah. being quite possibly the most generally famous Musical mm-hmm. director in uh, very, very possibly in musical theater has that changed? Just how you look at what you do, or your opportunity to help people understand what it is you do. That's interesting. Um, I don't know. I don't really. I haven't really thought about it. I, I, uh, I'm. I love what I do. I feel just lucky to be working. Frankly, <laughs> it's just you know <laughs> rolling out of bed and working. It's just a, such a good thing um, that I, I don't really think about it too much. Well, now, now that Brooklyn is up and running, are you still working on that? Do you make any changes? I'll tell you, I'm working now producing the cast album of Brooklyn. I'm uh-huh. in the studio 12 hours a day now working uh, on that, and it's very exciting. We did something very unusual with the cast album of Brooklyn. We recorded it live in front of a live studio audience. And in my mind, it's the first Broadway original cast recording to be recorded live in front of an audience. The audience at Brooklyn is such an integral part of the experience of Brooklyn because they scream and they shout and they, they you know they're very very uh involved and so we thought to go into the studio and to do sort of an antiseptic you know where you do this rabble rousing song and then silence just didn't feel right so in other words we're actually going to hear audience yes, response you'll hear laughter on- and applause and you really get the feeling that you get when you see Brooklyn on Broadway. And we should say that the track that we played earlier, Once Upon a Time, is not from the cast album. That's that right. was a pre-rehearsal Correct. of that the was Broadway a, production. That was a recording. CD sampler that we recorded as a marketing device, uh, and we've used that you know, on the radio and various But that's places. not what we're going to hear when no. the album is in the stores. No, you'll hear the, the, uh, the Broadway version, which is very similar, but a lot of claps at the end. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> the audience was into it. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. How, how long was the recording process? Over several days? Or? We recorded in one day. We did it uh, at a big, beautiful studio called Right Track uh, here in New York, and we brought in 120 people uh, to be the audience. We did three passes of the show. We did the first pass with the first audience, a second pass clean with no audience, and then a third pass with a second audience. And so I'm taking the best of. You did the entire score in. three times. We didn't, yeah, mostly. But, but you weren't, but, but it was basically each song three times. Straight through. As exactly. opposed to the usual recording session where you work through each song. That's right. Until you've got it right. That's right. Normally, if you do it the other way, you would say you do uh, a song called, maybe we do Raven three or four times, maybe two times. If you get it right after two, you're done. But if, you know, you'd, you'd keep going. So it, it kind of worked out to be about the same amount of singing for all and, of And them. often you would do just a pickup of a part of the mm-hmm, song, and then mm-hmm. it could be edited together later. Right. And so that's different. Now, you won a Grammy for producing uh, the album for Annie Get Your Gun. Yes, I did. So that was a very different dynamic in how you did that recording. Very different. The way we did Annie Get Your Gun and Taboo were both both just working through each song until we, until we felt we had it. The uh, more traditional way of recording. Correct. Yeah. yeah. This has been really fun, though. Apparently, they did Lion King this way, not live, uh, not in front of an audience, but they did it They did it straight through and then took the best of it. And I think it's a great way. I'll tell you, the thing that really that I love about it most is that the actors 
performed. They gave performances because there were people sitting there, you know, uh, and I think putting them in a studio with headphones on in a little room, I just didn't feel like they were going to give the kind of performances that would translate. Well, well, often when people put body language into their performance, it probably reflects in their their voice. So here they were, I guess, doing all of the motions in the the body language, I would assume. Exactly right. And in the choices on Brooklyn, uh, Brooklyn... An intermissionless show runs about an hour and forty minutes. Yeah. And it's certainly, as John mentioned, roughly eighteen songs in it. Is this going to be a single album, a single yes. disc? Yes. So, how do you boil down the show? Do you did you include dialogue? Can people listen? To, will people be able to listen to this <laughs> album and get, get the, the entire of shape of the show, or almost, is it almost. song to song? Almost. It's we recorded more dialogue than I'm actually using ultimately. Um, because it was just easier in the moment than to stop and start again. I just let them roll. Uh, but in the editing process now, I've taken out stuff that's extraneous that we just don't need that maybe works with the visual, but you don't necessarily need it in a in a listening experience. So I'm trying to um, tell the story, certainly, with some dialogue, a lot of music, and hopefully it'll be a, a really entertaining CD to listen to. So the audience, the the, the record-buying public, let's say, that has yes. not come to New York to see Brooklyn can still get the idea of the show by listening to the CD. Absolutely. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting concept. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of live performances, um, you have an album out of your own called John McDaniel Live at Joe's Pub. Yes, indeed. Now, when when did this occur? This, this is you performing was, live, This was right? February of 03, uh-huh. I believe. Uh, Valentine's Day, and uh, Eden Espinosa, who plays Brooklyn in Brooklyn, was my guest artist, and we uh, we had a great time. It was a snowy weekend in New York, and uh, we uh, recorded. Uh, well, this was all sort of my favorite songs at the time, and uh, like, like like what 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 songs were on it? Well, I did a couple of Beatles tunes. Um, I did some standards. I did. A, I have a dog named Joe, Joanne. And uh, so I, I sang Happiness is Just a Thing Called Joe for her with her picture on the piano. <laughs> was was pretty, she in the audience? Pretty annoying. No, she wasn't. <laughs> She's not very well behaved. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I sang a duet with Eden, which is one of my favorites, um, Brenda Russell tune called Get Here. Uh, it was the first. It was the way I brought Eden onto the stage. Should we play that? Sure. Get you want to hear it? Yeah. yeah Get let's, Here. Let's do that. All right. John McDaniel singing and playing with Eden Espinosa. John McDaniel live at Joe's Pub. Can't she sing? Wow. <laughs> and how. <laughs> She's really something. And can he sing too? Ah, <laughs> oh, he's all right. <laughs> you had developed um, a lot of your Broadway work. You were working out at the um, Civic Light Opera in Long, Long Beach. Beach. Yes, California. And that was one of, an opportunity where you had a chance to do a series of mostly classic shows. Mm-hmm. And, but you also got a lot of names coming through and, and doing that. Definitely. And that was before the the, the Rosie O'Donnell recognition mm-hmm. and, and That's all right. of that. That's right. Um, those were relatively short runs of shows? Yeah, they'd run for two and a half weeks. Right. Yeah, so we did four a year. And you had Pete, Carol Burnett came oh, through. Oh, yeah. And Tyne Daly and Nell Carter and Leslie Uggams. And it was an incredible experience. It was like, you know, music theater camp. I, I just – I got to work with a full orchestra every time and full sets and costumes and stars and – Huge choruses, and it was just—it was great, great training. My, one of my favorite productions at Long Beach was 
a production of Chicago, which uh, was directed by my friend Rob Marshall, who I'd gone to college mm. with Rob at Carnegie Mellon. I think we've heard his name in connection with Chicago. Yes, I believe you did subsequently. <laughs> Subsequent to that. <laughs> and yeah. also his famous sister, Kathleen Marshall. Yes, indeed. Choreographer, director. So uh, Robbie and I had met three weeks into my time at Carnegie Mellon. Um, he was doing a, a, a weekend show out at the Green Tree Marriott uh, called City Lights, and he hated the piano player. And he heard me play, and he said, oh, you've got to come to our show. So we became great friends from that minute. And uh, years later, I'm in Long Beach, and we're doing Chicago, and uh, Barry Brown, the producer, selected Rob to direct and Ann Ryan King to do the choreography. And B.B. Uh, North played uh, Velma, and Juliet Prowse was Roxy. And, and this all just... predates the Encores production of Definitely, course. before yeah. Encores. This was really the reason that Annie and B.B. decided, let's do this in Encores. This so is, this is this kind of is what, great. early 90s, mid-90s? Yeah, 92, I think. 92, mm-hmm. yeah. And uh, it was a phenomenal experience. Just great. We had the original Tony Walton set, and uh, it, was, it was tremendous, really exciting. Mm-hmm. There is always that question of, how do you get started doing what you do? You are the first musical director that we've had on the show. Oh, cool. How do you go from obviously being somebody who loved Broadway and had obvious musical talent? How did you transition? Because <coughs> I even see, you know, I see a cruise ship credit in mm-hmm. some of your material. Definitely. But, but how, do you, how do you go from, from being the fan, being yeah. the student I was the, to I doing I was the kid who, who would check out the cast albums, you know, five at a time from the, from the Kirkwood Public Library in St. Louis. That's where you were going, St. Yes. Yeah. And I grew up going to the St. Louis Muni. One summer I saw uh, – just this was in one summer. Zero Mostel did Fiddler. Uh, Yul Brenner did The King and I. Carol Channing did Dolly. And Angela Lansbury did Mame. And it was just – it just knocked my socks off. I said, how can this be happening right here in St. Louis? Mm-hmm. It was just unbelievable. Um, they were touring, of course, you know, but um, it was just a great, great place to grow up uh, seeing musicals. I just loved them from the time I was, I was uh, able to love them, I guess. And I just always played the piano. My mom's a piano teacher, so I always had that kind of in my hip pocket. And even in high school, I played the piano for some shows. Um, when I went to Carnegie Mellon, I was studying acting. I wanted to be the next Robert Preston. And uh, I realized that, well, actually, Mel Shapiro, who was the head of the department, said to me, you know, your music is really special. You should really consider focusing on that. And a little light bulb went off, and I said, of course, I, I, that's great. So I, that my, my last two years at, at Carnegie Mellon, I studied um, – orchestration and conducting and sort of more of a of a musical bent, uh, but still music theater. I took Mel's directing class and uh, emerged at the end of my time at Carnegie Mellon, a music director, and I got to work on cruise ships, as you mentioned. I uh, worked on 10 different ships and traveled the world. It was an unbelievable experience. And, uh, but still, Broadway was always still what I wanted to do. I wound up living in L.A. I met some friends and lived in L.A. for 10 years and did theater of course, we talked about Long Beach, and I just started working at you know bigger theaters all the time. I, I, there was a time I was doing work at the Pasadena Playhouse and and a lovely little Equity Waiver Theater in West Hollywood called the Coast Playhouse. I did a lot of really fun work there. In fact, that's where I met Jeff Calhoun, with whom I've worked so much now on Broadway. So it's sort of a question of just saying yes when the jobs came along and and graduating to larger theaters until ultimately you're. You know, doing, so even doing though, your dream. Even though you kind of refocused your direction in college, you've since pretty much, pretty much followed the path you wanted to follow. No question, yeah. yeah. What do you see happening now once you get the, the album produced for Brooklyn? Beyond that, what, what do you want to do next? Well, I think the, the next thing we're looking at is, is the tour of Brooklyn. We're uh, now beginning to investigate when we might be able to get that out. 
Um, it feels as though Brooklyn's going to be around on Broadway for a long time. Audiences are, are growing and they're loving it and it's really thrilling. Um, beyond that, I don't know. I'll tell you, the next thing I really want to do is to write. I've, I've, I have a few projects I'm working on with some different friends um, and I feel that I've been arranging other people's music now just the perfect amount of time, and it feels like it's time for me now to write something. To write your own music. Yes. As opposed to book. Yes. But I do yeah. have to yeah, ask. I'm not going to write the book. It's too was, hard. <laughs> there were rumblings that, that Rosie had another project in the wings. Is that uh, is there something coming, and are you are possibly a part of that? I, I might be. Rosie has, has spoken with me about it, and I've met um, Cindy Lauper, who is writing the music to her show, Find Me, which they're developing. Um we haven't talked about it lately. I've been so focused on Brooklyn and, and Rosie was so focused on the John Kerry campaign that she, we were both a little bit distracted. We did your own shows. <laughs> yes, we did. But, uh, but uh, I would love to work with Cindy Lauper. I think the world of her, that would be really exciting. So listen, anything's possible. Well, John McDaniel, uh, Brooklyn is playing eight times a week at the Plymouth Theater here in New York. The CD is coming out when? Yes, in a, a very uh, hopefully by the end of November. Oh, yeah, it's imminent then. Thank you so much for being with us today on Downstage Center. Thank you, John. Thank you, Howard. Thank you. This is Howard Sherman from the American Theater Wing. I want to remind everyone that all of the Downstage Center interviews, as well as other media projects of the American Theater Wing, are available as free, on-demand audio and video from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten. For Downstage Center, that's a wrap.